and uh, they, uh, they send their greetings to you this morning. I want to uh, just start by saying, how many of you are note takers? So those of you that are note takers, bring your notes with you if you're coming next Saturday because we're going to do some time of review over what we've talked about today to lay a foundation for the whole seminar. But again, I want to reiterate that the seminar is not just for people who are in conflict. In fact, if I had my preference, I, I do teach this when I walk into church war zones, and I've, I've seen several of those in my career. Um, but my preference would be, really, to teach people who are not in conflict so that when conflicts arise, you know what to do with them and they don't spiral out of control. And that's really, this is, a, this is what the seminar is really about, is creating what we call a culture of peace in your family, uh, in your workplace, in the church family, so that we really are honoring Jesus in all of our relationships. Uh, you know, peacemaking really is the mission of God's people. Peacemaking is really the heart of Jesus. Peacemaking, if you think about it, is really the heart of the Christian faith. Because everything that we are and everything that we do revolves around forgiveness, doesn't it? So the whole Bible is a book about peacemaking. And we'll show that more next week as we gather together. Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Jesus, it is for you that we gather. We are in this place to lift your name on high and to surrender afresh to you in thought, in word, and in deed. And so, Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves to you in this time, and we invite you to be here, to anoint not only the time of teaching, but the time of listening and learning, that your spirit would, would enable us to grasp what you need us to grasp so that we can walk out the life that you have laid before us. Father, I pray that for any folks that may be here this morning that actually are experiencing conflict right now in one of their relationships, that Jesus, you would speak to them this morning very clearly, very lovingly, and give them hope and give them maybe some tools where they could begin addressing that broken relationship. Father, I surrender to you afresh. I just, I want to get a fresh start here as I meet with this precious congregation. I ask you to wash my sins once again by my daily walk with you. Fill me with your spirit and enable me to be your vessel this day. That what comes across the sacred desk this morning is not from John Kimball, but is from you. And we thank you for this and give you glory for it. In the name of our King, amen. 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 <clears throat> well, we have just come through, some mates might say we've just survived the Christmas season. Um, and the thing that's really exciting about the, the Christmas season is that it really focuses on this whole idea of peace. In the Old Testament, 
and we hear this every year at Christmas, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. The Hebrew word that's used here is the word shalom. And so we want to talk about what shalom is this morning. And just so you know, we're, we're building a we're building a biblical foundation, a biblical theology for what we're going to talk about on Saturday. And so this morning, we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures together. So if you've, if you've got your Bibles open, I'll tell you where we're going each time. But there's going to be a lot of page turning today as we go through this message because we want to lay a good foundation. This word shalom is almost always misunderstood. Because people think that shalom, people think that peace is defined as an absence of conflict. Anybody think that would be a good definition for for the word peace? That is only one small facet of this beautiful jewel that Jesus has given us called shalom. Shalom is a word that is just pregnant with meaning. Shalom means wholeness. Shalom means well-being. Shalom means fullness, specifically the fullness of him. Shalom means completeness. Shalom means full health, body, soul, and spirit. It means I'm, I'm healthy physically, I'm healthy emotionally, and I'm healthy spiritually. All of those things and more are wrapped up in this word shalom. And so when we say that Jesus is the prince of shalom, it is all of this that Jesus desires to bring to our lives. You with me? It is also all of this that Satan wants to rob from our lives. So we're going to be focusing in on one facet of this beautiful jewel, and that's the relational component of conflict. But please understand that what we're talking about here is so much more, is so incredibly full. And what I love is... The Hebrew, word in, uh, the Hebrew word shalom that is used in the Old Testament has a twin sister in the New Testament. It's the Greek word erene, and guess what? The word erene means the same thing that shalom means. And so when we talk about peace, we are talking about this incredible experience of the fullness of God in our lives. The word peace, whether you're talking about shalom or erene, it shows up uh, 263 times in the scripture. Do you think it's maybe important? Do you think maybe God's trying to get a point across to us about something? And so what I want to do today, I want to go back to the very beginning and look at the way that God actually created us, and we'll start from there. So let's start in Genesis chapter 1. I love that our scriptures begin with these words, in the beginning, God. And I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Uh, Perhaps Pastor Jason has has, uh, shown you this before. But in the first three verses of scripture in Genesis, we see the triunity of God. Have you ever noticed that before? 
You've got God the Father, you've got the Spirit hovering over the darkness, and you've got the Word. And in John chapter 1, we learn the Word is who? It's Jesus. So when God speaks, it's Jesus that is the agent that goes forth and, and is the creation. It does the creation. That's why John says, nothing has been made that has not been made through him, through the word. So here we see God systematically creates over a period of six days. And at the end of each day, God steps back and he looks at what he has accomplished and he says, it is, it is good. And this is, this is God's own standard now. God is the standard. He himself is the standard. And he's going, hey, this is good. I like this, right? Good job. Pats himself on the back and we go on to the next day. He moves on through days three, four, five, and he gets to day six. And something special happens on the sixth day of creation. Everything else has been kind of laid as a framework for this, the crown of God's creation. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 26. Then God said, let man, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves along the ground. And as God steps back from this co-regent that he has created, and he looks at all the creation from days one through six with man now on his behalf at the helm, and God steps back back and he says something different than he has said on the previous five days. He steps back and he says, it is very good. Now, do you think maybe in God's appraisal of the way things were when mankind was created, humanity took the, the, the command of God and, and began to rule and reign on God's behalf as a co-regent over the earth, do you think that maybe the world was at peace? Do you think maybe at that moment, if God's saying it's very good, that shalom flowed like it was supposed to throughout all the earth? I submit to you that that's exactly what God is saying when he says it is very good. And I'm going to give you some evidence of it here as we jump to the second chapter of Genesis. There's a little overlap in the creation account, but here we get to see how, how Eve was created out of Adam. And we go through this whole thing, and man meets Eve, and after he's looked at all the animals, and he goes, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's good. Oh, that's really creative. I like that. But no helper was found suitable for him. So God puts him to sleep, takes a piece of his rib, and he creates woman. And if you look at verse 23, man says, wow! I mean, isn't that what verse 23 actually says? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Wow! He's taken aback with the beauty and the perfection 
of the woman. And it says, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Listen to verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Why do you think they felt no shame? Because of shalom. Perfect peace. Everything was as it should be. Perfect fullness. They were living, they were dwelling in the presence of God. It was as it should be. Then comes chapter 3. And in chapter 3, everything changes. For the first time in the scriptures, we see a word, enmity. Hatred. We see that the relationship between the man and the woman went from wow to what? There's now a broken relationship as we see uh, in, in verses 16 and following. He says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be. That wasn't how Shalom set it, was set forth at the beginning, that there would be this competing relationship between the husband and the wife. And as there are kids born to this union, it gets worse. How many of you know the story of Cain and Abel? The first murder takes place. Shalom is gone. This peace that God desires for his people is missing. But we see that God's desire is that indeed this peace would be brought back. Take a look at Numbers Chapter 6, Aaron and his sons, his, his uh, sons and grandsons become the priestly line, and God teaches in, in Numbers chapter 6 how they are supposed to bless the congregation of Israel. And it's a, it's a foreshadowing of, of the life they're going to have with God when shalom is fully restored. The Lord says, verse 22, to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom. And so from the beginning of the people of Israel under Moses and Aaron, God starts reestablishing shalom. When the people are blessed, he passes on shalom. Just look at the Psalms. You'll see God's desire is peace for his people uh, throughout the Psalms. You can look at, just jotting down some notes quickly, Psalm 29, verse 11, Psalm 37, verse 11, Psalm 119, verse 65, and those are only three of so many places where God speaks peace to his people. But this peace that God desires is not taking root the sin of man is keeping people at odds, and so God has to send his son. Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9, I'm sorry, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace. Listen to this. Of the increase of his rule and reign and the increase of his shalom. See, this is what he's saying. These two things under Jesus are going to be increasing. His rule and reign is going to advance on the earth. That's through us, by the way. And his peace is going to advance on the earth. You're going to learn Saturday. That's through us, by the way. We are the peacemakers. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We see Isaiah 53 was read earlier when we had our communion. You know that before it says, by his stripes we are healed, it says that it's because of his sacrifice that we have peace. In Micah 5, verses 2 through 5, we have a prophecy that tells us that this Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem. And it goes through and it talks about him establishing his rule and reign. And the very last stanza of that prophetic psalm is, and he will be our peace. Jesus came to establish such peace. Satan wants to prevent it because it means that humanity living in this peace is once again everything God designed us to be, and that brings a big uh uh-oh to hell. God wants us to be back in our original God-intended design and authority. This is why Jesus, in the beautiful passage of John 10, where he talks about being the good shepherd, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. What is that? It's shalom. It's a reine. So understanding what this peace is, we also then need to understand what takes it away. What compromises it? In the words of Jesus, what Satan uses to steal, kill, and destroy. And so now I want to transition to talking specifically about relational conflict because that's what our our seminar is going to be about next week. And I want to take us to James chapter 4. James writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. We're going to come back to that. Don't you know... That friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live within us envies intensely. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Can you pop the thing to the next slide? Thanks. Anyway, it should say, you adulterous people. (laughs) 
who is this James that is writing this letter? Anybody know? He's Jesus' half-brother. James is one of the sons born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. James is one of those brothers that thought Jesus was absolutely nuts. You know the story? Jesus is there teaching and somebody says, hey, your mom and your brothers are here. And Jesus says, who are my, my mother and my brothers? And you learn from the scriptures that they thought he was crazy and they were kind of trying to get him sidelined so they could take care of him. Somewhere along the way, baby brother James comes to Jesus. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes the lead apostle at the church at Jerusalem. So now, as this is being written, James, the lead apostle at the big church, the home church, the mother church in Jerusalem, James is now writing to who? Who do you think? It's the church. How, what do you think the makeup of this particular church is that he's writing to? It's primarily Jews, Jews that are, are dispersed around the empire. Certainly some Gentiles are, are already in there, but it's primarily a Jewish audience. So I, I, just, I want you to track with me here. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the lead apostle at the church at Jerusalem, is writing to a Jewish Christian audience who are not forgiving each other. This Jewish Christian audience, unlike the Gentile Christian audience that we might cut some slack to because they didn't grow up hearing about the Messiah. They didn't grow up hearing about Shalom. They didn't grow up learning all these things from the rabbis and, and, and from the synagogue and the temple. These were people who did. These were people who were steeped in this. These were people who knew and lived the whole history of Judaism leading up to the Messiah, and they had accepted Christ as their Messiah. This is to whom James is writing. And he says to these Jewish Christians, you're adulterous people. Those are fighting words. That's strong language. What's an adulterer or an adulteress? Someone who cheats on their spouse or who is unfaithful. Let me put this in biblical language. Someone who violates a covenant. You with me? All right. I'm making an assumption because I know your pastor that you all here are okay with me being a triune guy, believing... God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are we all, we all okay with that? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> if not, we, I've got a different sermon for you. But anyway. <laughs> so some of you here in the room were with us at Palmwood Church last Holy Week when we celebrated the Seder, the Passover Seder. And I've been talking with the bishop, and we're going to be trying to do that together, both churches together this year, I think is the plan, so... Uh, we're kind of in the planning stages of that. But in the middle of the Seder, there is this time where uh, we celebrate what Jesus did that instituted the communion that we took today. And in, in the communion, or in the Seder, there is this cloth envelope that has three pieces of matzah in it. Jewish people would understand that the, the three matzahs were for the priests, the Levites, and the congregation. But Messianic Jews, Jews who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah, see this very differently. Because they will tell you, oh, no, no, no. It's 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what makes this so powerful is when Jesus was sitting with his disciples in the upper room about to do the, the very first communion, which was actually the Passover Seder. He was doing it with the Passover Seder. It was the middle piece of matzah he took out and broke. Yeah, the one representing himself. And he says what? This is my body which is broken for you. Wow. See, the son, what he, the price that he paid was incredible. Think with me for a moment. When you and I talk about eternity as Christians, we usually talk in terms of eternity future because that's our future, right? You and I all had a beginning. Jesus didn't. So do you realize eternity goes just as far the other direction (laughs) as it does to the future? It goes to the past. And from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always had this beautiful, harmonious, loving, perfect, shalom relationship with each other forever. It has never not been that way. And they have so much love for each other, they desire, the scripture indicates to us, they desire to share the love, and so that's why they create you and me. This is why they created humanity, to share the love. And so we are created, and chapter 3 happens. And they're looking at at the crown of their creation, the the only part of creation that is made in their image, in their likeness, made to be like them and to represent them quite literally on the earth. And God, I'm telling you, God could have said, ah, this whole humanity thing didn't work. Out of the pool, we're done. But he didn't do that. You know, the angels sinned and he never redeemed the angels. But he did humanity. Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, the Son, who's forever been in a beautiful shalom relationship with the Father and the Spirit, he chooses, he chooses to become human, to rescue us. Now, I, we have to, if we're going to understand this whole peacemaking thing, we've got to understand what Jesus did with us. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us what Jesus did. Paul says that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not think that this Godness was something to be grasped, is what the NIV says. Basically, what it's saying is Jesus did not feel like he could, he could use his Godness to rescue us, and so he emptied himself. The word there in the Greek is kenosis. It means total emptying, that he took all that was in him and took it out and took on human flesh. Jesus understood that in order to represent you and me on the cross of Calvary, he had to be 
fully human and nothing more. Now, Jesus was always God, even when he was on the earth. He's, he's always God and man. But for that season as he walked on earth, he had, if you will, vernacular term, but if you will, he checked his godness at the door of humanity so that he could be perfectly and only human to rescue us from our sins. Now, I just I want to give a little commentary here because I want to make sure you understand this. There's a lot of people who think that Jesus knew what was on men's hearts and minds. Jesus drove out demons. Jesus spoke a word and people were healed because he was God. That's not what the scripture says at all. He did that because before he started his ministry, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. He did that because he was walking in the Holy Spirit, and he was in, was in regular prayer communion with the Father. He got his marching orders from Dad, he got the empowerment from the Spirit, and he walked in obedience. And that's exactly what Paul says. He was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And just so you know, the same Spirit that gave Jesus that ability is the same Spirit that you and I have as believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus looked at his disciples. He says, you see all these things I've done. I tell you, you're going to do even greater things than these. Why? Because it's the same spirit, see? I don't want to get off on a tangent because I could go preaching there too. <laughs> Here's the point. Jesus lived the perfect human life and he died on the cross of Calvary. And when he was on the cross, he took upon himself all of the sins of humanity and endured the wrath of God because of it. Jesus, hanging from the nails through his wrists and his feet, with the, the thorns driven into his scalp, blood dripping down his face, and his lungs filling with fluid because that's how they died. It was, was asphyxiation when they, when they hung on the cross. Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you realize what happened in that moment? The son who had perfect shalom and connection with the father and the spirit from eternity past, for the first time in all eternity, his relationship was broken with God. Why? For us. For us. And so as Jesus is sitting there in the upper room and he takes that cup, the third cup, the cup of redemption is what it's called, and he passes it to his disciples, he says these words, listen carefully. This cup is the new covenant that is in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins Jesus gave up his godness he endured the wrath of God his relationship temporarily severed with the father on our behalf for our sake and all of that all of that was to establish or reestablish actually a covenant relationship with God a covenant that would never end a covenant that brings with it everlasting life. 
Jesus went through all of that for you and for me. And understand, friends, those first century Jewish believers to whom James is writing, they understood that better than you and I do. They knew what the covenant was. They were a covenant people. And James is saying, Jesus went through all of this for you and for me, and you're refusing to forgive one another? How dare you? You're adulterous people. You are violating the new covenant that came by Jesus' blood. You adulterous people. Friends, please understand, and we'll talk about this more on Saturday, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not allowed to withhold forgiveness to anyone. Ever. Ever. It's adultery. It's infidelity. It's a violation of your covenant vow when you accepted Jesus as your Savior. Now, I understand for God, forgiveness is instantaneous, and for some of us, it's a process. I get it. And that's okay. We'll work through that on Saturday. We'll talk about it because that, that's reality. But you can't withhold it. You cannot withhold it to anyone because God did not withhold it to anyone. It gets tougher. Jumping to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. We understand what he went through. So therefore, we are compelled. We have got to get on this mission. We cannot not be a people of mission. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, although we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave, through Christ, gave us the what? Excuse me. What? God gave you and I What? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The peacemaker with a capital P has called us to be peacemakers. It's part of the mission. It's a non-negotiable. If forgiveness is the heart of the gospel, if forgiveness is the heart of the Christian faith, it is the main thing we do, friends. And though God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, amen, and he has committed to us the what? The message of reconciliation. That's the gospel. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Ambassadors. This idea of ambassadors. 
An ambassador is one who represents a king or the president with all the authority of the sovereign. You realize if, if our president were to send an ambassador to Saudi Arabia or someplace and sign a treaty, so the ambassador signs his name on the treaty, that signature has all the authority of the seal of the president of the United States behind it. Do you realize that? Now, you and I are called ambassadors of the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. When you and I operate, we have all the authority of the king of all kings behind us. We were made ambassadors in the Great Commission. We were commissioned to that role. Making disciples is peacemaking. It's bringing people back to shalom, to fullness, to exactly what they were designed to be. That's our role. He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation as though we are Christ's ambassadors because we are, be reconciled to God. And then there is this statement. It blows me away. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be. And actually, the word there in the Greek is to become. To become sin. It's the great exchange, friends. So that in him... What does it say? Wow. The great old hymn, Jesus Paid It All, takes on all new meaning, doesn't it? He took all our sin and gave us all his righteousness. So we are up for the task. We lack nothing. Jesus left his throne to come to earth to establish forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace. It's all about peacemaking. The whole Bible's about peacemaking. When God's people, the church, refuse to reconcile and live in peace with one another, they reject the mission of their bridegroom, Christ, and the very heart of God found in the gospel. This is unfaithfulness. We cannot do this. Furthermore, without individual peacemaking and as a result, peacemaking and reconciliation within the body of Christ, here's the hard part because it's the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. Friends, if we do not reconcile one with another, we no longer have a gospel. Because it is the message of reconciliation. You know, the world, gosh, the world looks at the church and they see that, that our divorce rate is about the same as the world. They see that our marriages are about as messed up as the world. We, they see our parent-child relationships are about as messed up as the world. They see that, that there's just as much porn addiction and drug addiction and, and alcoholism and all those kinds of things. The church is really kind of mimicking the world in many ways, unfortunately. And they see us fighting, especially on Sunday morning. All, you know, when a church is, is at war, the, the community knows about it. You can't hide it. And the world looks in and says, yeah, that, that gospel of peace thing, how's that working for you? Is it any wonder the world does not want what we're selling? Is it any wonder at all? A local congregation can only export what it actually owns and lives out, and the world around us is watching. You and I are called to be peacemakers. I love in Jesus' Beatitudes... One of them is, blessed are the peace 
makers. For they will be called what? Yeah, the, the word actually is the sons of God there. It's not that it's you know, ignoring women at all. But I think that the word is important because the son of God is the peacemaker. So when you and I are about the, the business of making peace, we are most like Jesus when we do that. And there's a big difference, friends, between peacemaking and peacekeeping. Peacemaking is fostering peace where it doesn't exist. Peacekeeping is keeping the lid on the conflict because it's still there. Just think of UN peacekeepers. What do they do? They go into a place to make sure people get along. But the, but the problems haven't gone away, right? Problems haven't gone away. We do not want to be peacekeepers. You don't ever, ever, ever want to be a peacekeeper. You are called to be a peacemaker. You have the authority of the king to be a peacemaker. And we're going to talk about that next Saturday. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you've not only called us, but you've equipped us, you've empowered us. And so, Lord, I just pray now that throughout the rest of this week, as this message percolates in our minds and our hearts, you will speak clearly. You will expose our hearts where we are refusing to forgive. You will calm our fears with shalom where we need to take steps of peace. And Father, you'll give us the tools next week to make this a reality. So the culture of peace of heaven permeates the core faith family and every individual family that makes up the core faith family. And that it becomes a wildfire from there touching every part of our community. And we'll give you glory for this. In the name of our King and Chief Peacemaker, Jesus. Amen.